Veronica Rooney. And my name's Brooklyn Shively. And this is Resilience, a podcast sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and a proud partner of the 2021 semester program. Resilience is a word used to describe communities bouncing back from tragedy, nations recovering from crises, the land we live on after being ravaged by natural disasters and the effects of climate change. It's how we describe those who overcome adversity and thrive. On this podcast, we will interview professors in the College of Arts and Sciences about how their work intertwines with resilience, exploring how populations rethink systems to combat climate change, fight racial oppression through youth organizing, or adapt to a booming mediascape. We have a tremendous capacity to bounce back, or do we? Join us as we explore this year's semester topic, resilience. This week, we sat down with Dr. Heather Reynolds, an associate professor of biology here at Indiana University. Reynolds has spent her career focusing on plant-environment interactions in a variety of contexts. She is unique in that she is a scientist who not only seeks knowledge, but also to apply that knowledge to solve problems at the local level and combat climate change. Dr. Reynolds recognizes the 21st century as the century of the environment and is interested in melding basic science with community wisdom to re-engineer agriculture and other forms of infrastructure to be more green. We spoke to Dr. Reynolds about her work as a biologist and why she believes that the fight against climate change belongs at the local level. Let's welcome Dr. Heather Reynolds to this week's episode of Resilience. Hello, Dr. Reynolds. How are you doing today? I'm great, Brooklyn. Glad to be here. So we read up on some of your research, um, specifically um, your work about local agriculture. And one of the biggest things that you write about um, or how you begin your study is you begin by talking about the difference between basic and applied science. Why do you think that it's really important to clarify the difference between those two? Well, I wanted to clarify that because sometimes applied science is undervalued by basic scientists. So some basic scientists hold that basic science is somehow purer or better than applied science. But both basic and applied science are valuable. Both employ the scientific method, so they're both working by that same process of observations, questions, hypotheses, predictions, tests. Really, the difference between basic and applied is really in um, what drives that method. So with basic science, it's pure curiosity. It's the motivation. Is It makes the difference between pure and applied science. So the method is the same. The motivation is different. It's curiosity in basic science. Applied science is the desire to address a specific you know, societal challenge of some sort. Society altogether improves. We gain an understanding and we gain in addressing challenges when we support um, both, the, both of those types of science. I was wondering if you could talk about the distinction between resilience and sustainability. Sure. Um, so people raise sustainability as, I mean, sort of the 
the famous definition is meeting present needs without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Now, that's a very vague definition and one that has been developed and refined. And what I always teach my students is sustainability is meeting needs, present and future, within the regenerative capacity of Earth's ecosystems. You're not using resources any faster than they can generate it, and you're not producing wastes faster than the Earth can absorb and detoxify them. In order to achieve that, you have to recognize three important spheres, which are environment, economy, and society. And so sustainability is about what I said, that process of meeting needs without exceeding Earth's limits through understanding that you need to integrate those three spheres, environment, economy, and society. So environment, that's where you get to the idea of not exceeding Earth's limits, not exceeding regenerative and assimilative capacity. And then with society, you're thinking about equity and social well-being. So you want people to flourish, but you just want to do so in a manner that doesn't exceed um, Earth's capacity. And then of course, economy is, is a subset of society and uh, you need a vital economy, but again, you can't do it at the expense of either social well-being or environmental well-being. So we really are exceeding earth limits and we really are creating you know, massive change and disturbance and climate change is just one example. And so that has shifted the focus to, wow, we really need to Think about how to make our systems resilient to that change, where resilience can be formally defined as the capacity to to sustain its well-being and functioning in the face of disturbance. So you can push a system, you can disturb it, but if you can keep the sustain the functioning in the face of that and the well-being, then you've resilient system. So I want to say that sometimes um, scholars are now saying that, well, sustainability is passe and resilience is, you know, the latest buzzword, it's superseded sustainability. And I say, no, not at all. The two are complementary. We still need sustainability. The more we build resilience into our systems, the better off we'll be. But we really have to pursue both, both goals. Yeah, kind of building off of that, um, I was wondering if you could expand upon the shifting narrative from um, economy, society, and the environment being not only intersectional, but actually all encompassing and how we can apply this to our current infrastructure or rebuild our current infrastructure. Sure. Um, So sustainability was originally commonly uh, illustrated as a Venn diagram. So Venn diagram, right, is three intersecting circles. So in this case, our circles are environment, society, and economy. And so sustainability was conceived as, oh, it's the place where those three circles intersect and they've reconciled their, you know, it's the place, that sweet spot where we're, we're trying to reconcile all three of those things. And that's not a terrible representation of sustainability, but a much better representation in my mind that um, more faithfully 
represents that full definition that I gave you is um, imagine the three circles nested within one another instead of intersecting, where the outer circle is environment, the next circle inside that is society, and then finally the, the central circle is economy. And that explicitly recognizes that, first of all, economies are, of course, they emerge from societies and they're dependent on, they, they um, are shaped by society. So economies are a subset of society. And then both economy and society are a subset of environment, the, meaning the Earth's you know, in totality, the, the whole earth biosphere, which again recognizes that everything we need in society and for our economies comes from the earth and the ecosystems within it. The biodiversity, the water and mineral resources, all of those things are the foundation for healthy, you know, or for any um, human society and economy. And we have to recognize that, that, that bios, our biosphere is limited. That means we can't have an ever-growing economy or human, or human population um, as is unfortunately often thought otherwise. So you write a lot about the relationship between industrial agriculture and the growth economy. Um, and I'm wondering why that relationship is so important to you and why you've written a lot about it and how that fits into what you were saying earlier. Sure. And um, I was very much reflecting on and, um, you know, drawing from the work of many other people. Um, but when I wrote that, I was specifically thinking about how scientists who conduct agricultural research need to keep in mind the economic forces that influence their research agendas. And so they should consider, or they may want to consider whether they want to be supporting those economic forces and the agricultural methods that those forces produce. So if, yeah, so by considering that, you can decide, you know, what kind of agriculture maybe your research or you want to, um, that your research might be benefiting or not. So industrial agriculture, let me just start with that. You know, represents a very highly centralized, uh, corporate, uh, petrochemical, machine-based approach to food production, it, uh, you know, it, it, it has a place maybe in, in moderation and balance, but arguably, you know, we have this food industry that is arguably about corporate profit as much as it is, or maybe more than about feeding people. And in the process of feeding people, respecting local cultures and soil and biodiversity and the overall health of Earth's ecosystems. So, the because it is so tied to corporate corporate profit, then there's there's a drive then for ever increasing uh, food production because the assumption is you're going to have ever increasing economic growth. Economic or the economy is just the product of human population and per person consumption. Okay, so if you're going to grow the economy, which is the goal of most. Uh, entities today, certainly is the goal, goal of conventional economics, you're going to either have to grow population and or grow per person consumption. And so, you know, you're setting up a situation where 
you're you're always it's like you're always increasing the need for more food and so then there's a focus then too if your industrial agriculture is very it can be very efficient in the short term uh, can produce a lot of food but it is doing so at the expense of um, it's a you know causing soil depletion and erosion it's depleting biodiversity it's destroying local cultures and the local agricultural wisdom that has been built would you would you agree then that um localization and decentralization of these systems would be a valuable asset to our infrastructure and what would do you think if you agree would that look like within our economy yeah um so again, it is about balance and, and it's not as if I'm saying we just have to totally reject industrial agriculture and those methods, but we certainly need more balance. And I would say that we could benefit from promoting, in part at least, more decentralization and more localized agriculture. So another feature of industrial agriculture well, I think I already mentioned this, it is, it's highly centralized and it's very homogenizing, right? There's this sort of set of uh, factors, uh, machines and pesticides and chemical fertilizers um, that, that, and, you know, particular crop species that have been developed, very generic, um, that is, are imposed on landscapes and and homogenizes those landscapes right if you've got fertilizer and pesticide you don't need to think about the uh the unique aspects um and and the differences in particular landscapes you just sort of brute force your agriculture on top of those and so you kind of snow plow over the diversity that's there and again that works in the short term to produce food but in the long time in the long term, uh, you are destroying those ecological resources that underline, underlie uh, sustaining agricultural production. And you know, you're, you're creating homogenous environments, which are arguably more boring environments. We say variety is the spice of life for a reason. Um, and by, by imposing this homogeneity on the environment, that's, it's just not very resilient either. So um, having a landscape that's all planted with one type of crop or just a few types of crop, that's not very resilient. And we have, you know, experience after experience of this, how diversity, it's diversity that is such a key resilience builder because diversity provides the raw material for adapting to some unexpected past or to climate change or to some other type of change on the landscape. If we can encourage actually um, localized decentralized agriculture that, you know, it's, it's not about industrial profit, but it's about giving local people and promoting their ability to produce food appropriate to their landscape, crops that are appropriate to their landscapes um, through, you know, regenerative techniques um, of 
organic agriculture. So building soil with compost and, you know, promoting ecological interactions on the landscape, birds and that can help control pests. Using the, there's a lot of local indigenous wisdom from people the, the industrial agricultural model only arose in like the 1940s, 1950s. So we had a whole history of really healthy, sustaining agriculture prior to that and a lot of cultural wisdom that went into that. Um, so if we can bring at least some of that back, then we, we will have created more vital, diverse, resilient landscapes and given people food security, the ability to um, grow food uh, on their landscape rather than import it from some, you know, centralized agricultural production, potentially thousands of miles away. And so we will have promoted um, food security in that sense. What has been your experience um, in your in your research um, collaborating um, with locals to find solutions to these agricultural problems? Well, I, I do some agroecology in my in my research. I'm I'm a plant ecologist, and I, I have a broad uh, um, array of research that I conduct. But some of it is agroecological research. I think what you were trying to get at, though, is um, the idea of, of working to build local agriculture and by working with local farmers um, in at least partly a model of something called um, community-based participatory research. That's something that I'm really excited about. I, um, I've been gradually getting more and more into. And the idea is that the scientists are collaborating in research with non-scientist, uh, you know, community members. Um, so if you're doing agricultural research, then farmers, for example, this is a really, obviously it's a form of applied research that is highly informed by um, the people and places uh, where the research is being conducted. Kind of going along with that, do you, so do you think that, sorry, I'm going to say this, community-based? Yeah, you got it. Participatory research. Participatory research. Um, do you think that that should just, the motivation should just be within the community? Or do you think that the federal government should play a role in motivating this type of research? Well, uh, you know, I'm a pluralist in so many ways, and, and I, I believe that um, many, many approaches, you know, to, to a, a problem or to, um, to an activity are generally good. So, it, you know, I would say that uh, it, it would be awesome for, for government. I, th I, would, I think it, it's a positive thing for government to support some community-based participatory research and, and to support too, you know, different, more alternative, local decentralized agricultural models. But we also need initiatives to come from the grassroots themselves and from scientists themselves. So I think I, I'd like to see a multi-pronged approach to, to promoting more of this. So because you're so insistent on, you know, finding this balance um, 
one of the things that I was curious about in reading about what you call the steady state economy, and I don't know if that's originally your phrase or if that was from another scientist's work, um, but it became clear to me that the kind of sustainability that scientists are seeking might not be possible within the within the system of capitalism. Does that ever cross your mind that the kind of sustainability you seek isn't possible within the economic framework that we have? Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and to clarify, yes, indeed, the steady state economy, definitely not not a term uh, originated by me. Um, Ecological economists like Herman Daly, for example, Brian Check, um, Robert Costanza, Rob, uh, it's it's a little complicated there in, in terminology, but in any case, these these are the um, some of the experts who have developed this idea of steady state economy, and it is it is certainly a alternative, a direct alternative to our current conventional economy. So yeah, I guess what I would say is I, I don't believe sustainability is possible to achieve within our conventional economic paradigm, which is that paradigm of ever increasing growth. I mean, that's, and it's a paradigm that mm, ignores, it doesn't consider that, that model of the human economy and society being nested within and dependent upon the, the larger earth ecological economy. So, yeah, I don't feel sustainability is possible unless we change that paradigm. The steady state economy developed by ecological economists is a shift in paradigm. And it is, you know, graphically, it's that shift I described, very simple, of those nested circles where you're recognizing that the human economy is a subset of Earth's uh, biosphere and when you recognize that, you can develop macroeconomic principles that, that guide you toward nurturing an economy that respects those limits, especially when we take it to, you know, when we consume too much, which we're doing at a societal scale, and then we're undermining sustainability of the planet. We know we've got issues with climate change, um, soil depletion uh, biodiversity loss. So, um, I, yeah, personally, I believe that we have to shift to a steady state economic mindset that is a mindset that is consistent with sustainability and with resilience. You often hear people talking about, no, we don't need to do that. We just need, we can keep growing forever. We just need to grow green. And that's a fallacy because, you know, whether you're, whether you're growing the economy with more SUVs or more solar panels, if you're growing the economy, you're growing that product of human population and consumption, which is underlined by energy resources, material resources, and there's a limit to those. So instead of thinking of GDP, you know, gross domestic product or GNP, gross national product is ever growing. No, we need to think about it leveling off and sort of mildly fluctuating at a level that the the earth can sustain. And you're, again, shifting the focus 
from from growth to development, thinking about um, what is it that really makes people happy? Um, the you know ability to have relationships, to express creativity, yes, to to have a certain level of physical stuff, but um, not not so much stuff. Thank you to Dr. Reynolds for discussing our work with us today. The music for the intro and outro is Wrote This Letter Instrumental by Justin Anthony Adams and Sebastian Barnaby Robertson, provided by Universal Production Music under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Resilience, a podcast by Themaster. Master.